morning to all of you. It's great to have you here. It's a special Sunday for so many different reasons. Uh, one in particular, it's a type of homecoming for the graduates that missed the 2020 commencement. Then we had a 2020 commencement in 2021. So I've seen several of you with families. If you're a 2021 grad and you're still here, that wouldn't be normal. Uh, normally, you graduate and you're, you're out of here. If you're a 2020 grad coming back to graduate from Bob Jones University as they held their commencement, you might even think about, hey, I'm here on Saturday. Maybe I'm going to stay over for Sunday. It's great to see all of you here. And of course, um, happy Mother's Day. Um, it's a, a special day set apart, as we've already mentioned, chocolate available to all the moms, um, encouragement to, uh, to just realize that you have such a significant role in the lives of so many. And all of us have this in common. We have a mom, right? So that, that's the common bond, that, that one of the common bonds that binds us together. And so we'll talk down that line. And I want to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Titus. So the book of Titus, we're going to look at chapter 2. And I'll, I'll talk about which particular verses we're going to look at. Um, you see this backdrop, and that's on purpose too, because it's a special Sunday, because we have the children with us for the entire sermon. Um, and so kids, as you maybe recognize this movie called Up, Disney Pixar, wonderful movie called Up, um, maybe you could draw a picture that relates to it as I'm talking through this text of scripture. Now it's not just that random, it's not that I'm just trying to pull the kids into the sermon, though I do want the kids to pay attention. There's an article in Christianity Today that uses the story of the movie Up to illustrate what it's like to hit days like today, Mother's Day, and not be the stereotypical mom with kids, right? There are several in our church, if you look at the demographics of our church, who are not mothers because they happen to be single. And what do we do on Mother's Day? Well, I want to encourage you that it, you should reflect on your mom. And if you have an opportunity to thank her for what she has done in your life, I want, you, want to encourage you with those truths. Inevitably, what I will do, what I have done over the past 11 years here, would be to take a day like today and emphasize the role of a mom in a family. I don't want that to turn off anyone who's not married. Um, marriage is a great thing, but it's not for everyone. God does call us, some of you, not me, because I'm married, coming up on 25 years, but some of you, to singleness. It's a gift and it's a blessing and there's opportunities for you to consider that. So I don't want you to turn me off. It's like, oh no, here's Mother's Day. Here we go again. It's a guilt trip time. No, that's not the point, okay? The other aspect of it is that you could be in a situation where you desire to have children and you're unable to have children. And so Mother's Day is a difficult day to come to church because you hear about all the moms where I happen to be going with my family just in a, about a month or so, Family Baptist Church, they have this tradition of recognizing all the moms. It's a smaller work, but what they'll do is they'll have the mom who has the most kids stand up, and, and she'll stand up. And it's actually it's kind of funny because they start with the grandma with the most grandkids, who ends up being the mom with the most kids. She ends up getting like five or six roses out of the 12 they give away, right? That happens every year. I've talked to dad about it, but whatever. Nonetheless, it is what it is. And, and so there's this recognition, and it's special. But, you know, here we are on Mother's Day, too, and I've asked you to keep the kids in with you. Happy Mother's Day. Right? <laughs> um, this particular article in Christianity Today, I have a link for you to consider, and it just takes you to the beginning of it. And the way Christianity Today works, you've got to sign up and, and get the subscription, so I'm not trying to disappoint you, 
but it gives you access to it if you want, want to look at it. It's an interesting way of a cartoon addressing very difficult topics. So the basic storyline is that you have Carl and Ellie who are childhood sweethearts. And they meet in this old abandoned kind of house and they have adventures and they plan and they eventually fall in love and they have amazing adventures in life. And they have all sorts of plans. And their plans really kind of hone in on ending up getting married and having a family. Carl and Ellie had these great big dreams of traveling the world and it never quite happened. But in their adventures of life, you see a quick frame that mentions in two different places. One, that Ellie is at the, at the doctor's office and she is receiving bad news and most kids wouldn't pick this up. But this is a picture of a mom who finds out she's unable to have a child. And maybe this day would bring some thoughts in your heart because we have several in our church family and this is just the fact around here who have experienced miscarriages. This is so heart-wrenching to go through that process. And I do want to encourage you that it shouldn't be a private thing unless you want it to be a private thing, meaning we desire to come alongside of you and grieve with you for the loss of life. And and we realize that, and I I am one who believes from Scripture that you will, will be reunited with that child in heaven. And I can talk to you about all the theology behind that, but that's where I land when it comes to that aspect of it that God says, Jesus says particularly, suffer the little children to come unto me, for such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. And I I really believe that's what's going to happen. But this is a quick frame. Most kids don't catch it. And it leads into them growing old, and then she ends up passing away. And that's that little picture where he's by her bedside and she dies. So life is full of these things. There, There are some really great things, adventures. There's some difficulties. And then along the way where the storyline picks up, there's this introduction of a guy named Russell. And Russell is the unseen blessing in life. And he is the guy that is annoying Carl to no end, trying to get a badge to walk an old man across the street or help an old man. And it's this thing that's really challenging. In the end, you find him finally realizing renewed purpose in life. So that is the story of Up in little cliff notes that you can go back and watch that if you want to. How in the world does it relate to our text today? Well, I want to take this particular story and connect it as hooks to hang thoughts on from the book of Titus. So open your Bible to Titus if you haven't done that already. I love this book in particular because in my Bible, it's just I open it up and it's, the whole book's right there. So I can refer around to it and look at it quickly. If you have a, a digital copy, sorry, um, you can't do that same thing. But if you open your Bible and you looked at it, you can see the whole book right there. And and I want to use these things to talk about different aspects of the story. We're going to start with the adventures of life. The adventures of life in the book of Titus, this is a letter by the Apostle Paul to Titus. To give you a bit of context on who Titus is, he's a Gentile believer, which is a big deal in this setting because usually it's Jewish person reaching Jewish person. But Paul understood that he is a missionary to the Gentiles, and so he leads Titus to a saving knowledge of Christ, and Titus comes alongside of him. You'll see the introduction of who Titus is in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He is this one who is not set apart in this right of, or act of circumcision, because he's a Gentile, and Paul is okay with it. 
And, and this guy is used of Paul to be an ambassador of sorts to the church in Corinth. And you'll see that in 2 Corinthians 7, 6 and 7, in chapter 8, verse 6. But you'll find out Titus was a guy that traveled with Paul and went and blessed the churches after the churches were started. Well, here we have Titus with Paul going along. The letter was written probably around A.D. 63 to 64, sometime after they left Timothy behind in Ephesus. So I've preached the last couple weeks from the book of First Timothy, and I've referred to what we should look for in a pastor. You find the same type of information in Titus chapter 1. So I have many different things I'm trying to accomplish with this one sermon, right? But I want you to understand that Timothy and Titus go together in these pastoral epistles. Well, could you imagine being with Paul, and you're his guy that just helps out and does whatever he wants, and you come to a place called Crete, and Paul says, you know what, Titus, I think you need to stay here. I think you need to stay here and you need to help strengthen the churches here because it's a mess here. And he says, yes, sir, and he's dropped off. Sometime after that, Paul writes this letter to Titus. Okay, so here, this is a great adventure. If you look down at your Bible, you'll see the adventure that Paul calls Titus to. He calls Titus in verses five, chapter 1, verses 5 through 16, to appoint elders in all the churches. Notice the plurality there, appoint elders, not an elder, but elders in the churches, which speaks of the power of a group of men called by God, qualified by God, to lead the church together as a team. But there is a a type of authority here that Paul gives to Titus, I need you to do the appointing. It's a unique type of thing. So that was an adventure. I mean, picking pastors and figuring out if they're a good fit for the church, all of that is an adventure that our church is on right now. And it's an exciting adventure because the Bible is a guide for us. But we also see in chapter 2, verses 1 through 311, and don't, don't lose me here as I'm just giving you a quick overview. He gives this idea of, Titus, now that you have the elders set up, I want to encourage you to build up the church. And he gives really specific instructions. He says, just as I've told this is what an elder should look like, this is how older men should act. And, and Older women should act, and younger women should act, and, and, and younger men should act. And this is how a slave should respond to a master. And this is all in the context of the church that happened to be in this area of Crete. And then he makes this statement. Look at verse 12. Basically, remember me. He says, this is his parting words, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. He's like, I'm right about to be winter, and so I need you to hurry up and send people. And by the way, I have a legal thing going on, so send the lawyer my way. He's giving all these things. He's like, don't forget about me, Titus, okay? You've got a lot of exciting things going on, but don't forget about me. And I have a plan for you. This book is beautiful because it highlights the very aspect we're going to look at, which is the amazing power, the transforming power of the gospel in a group of believers, seen through the grace of God. This is the adventure we're on. See, the last thing I want to do is burden you with all the ways, moms, you need to change what you're doing to match up to the Bible, okay? Now, I'm going to do that, 
But I'm going to do that by saying, here's the motivation behind how you can do that. So if all I did is tell you what you need to do, because that's what the Bible says, that's good to do. Because it says in verse 15, I'm supposed to exhort you and rebuke you. That's a hard thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. And I'm supposed to do it with all authority. But if all I did is just lay a huge burden on you and I didn't point you to the burden lifter, Jesus Christ, I'd do a disservice to you. And part of why we're here is to magnify the gospel in our families, in our community, and around the world. And yet we see some difficulties in life in this book. What are the difficulties? Well, if you look back, and I have my Bible just open, so I'm just considering the scan of what's going on in this book. You have Paul says to Titus, confront false teachers. Okay, so hey, go ordain elders. And if that's not difficult enough to know exactly what to look for, you need to realize you're going to come up against a group of people that can't stand you, that can't stand the gospel. And notice it says in chapter 1, in verse 11, they must be silenced. Paul says to Titus, you've got to silence these false teachers. And if that's not bad enough, look at verse 12. One of their prophets called all of them Cretans, are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So you're going to come across all these false teachers, and by the way, they're liars and they're lazy gluttons. At least that's the statement that's made about them. And so be ready for that. And then furthermore, in this idea of the false teachers, he tells them that they are ones that need to be confronted in the reality of what they're going to face in rebuking them sharply, it says in verse 13. So silence them, rebuke them sharply, And by the way, they uh, profess to know, verse 16 of chapter 1, they profess to know God. They really don't know. They don't really possess. So you're dealing with people that have no godliness in them, but they act like they're godly. That's kind of difficult. Then he goes on to talk to them about teaching sound doctrine, which I've already referred to. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, he just says straight up, but as for you, teach what accords with healthy doctrine. So this is what you have to do. And then he continues at the end of verse 15, in in chapter 2, there's that section of of the instructions to give to older and to younger and to slaves, and he says again, teach sound doctrine, not just teach it healthy, in a healthy way, but teach healthy doctrine passionately. Like, don't just be a a dried up, crusty, tell a bunch of facts, and just let it just stand wherever it stands. Actually, you got to be passionate about it, and the only way you're going to be passionate about it is if you have been impacted personally. And then the the last thing that I would say would be a difficulty in life is separate from divisive people. So see this in verse 10 of chapter 3. As for a person who stirs up division, this is in the church, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. So I don't know about you, but when I look at that, I think maybe those are some, excuse me, I'm going to fix this a little bit. Maybe some of those things are difficult to deal with. So we have adventures and we have difficulties, but where are the unseen blessings? We'll go back and focus our attention on chapter 2. So I'm honing in on the message at hand, and I want you to note the categories that we see. So look at chapter 2, start in verse 2. We see a category of the older men. See, the older men. If you look at verse 3, it gives us the category of older women. And then if you look at verse 4, young women. And then if you look at verse 6, urge the younger men. And then we see in verse 9, bond servants. 
are to be subject to their master. So we have these categories. These are unseen blessings. This first blessing is a blessing given to the older men, encouraging older men to practice wisdom and discretion. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that particular section because that's not the purpose of this day, Mother's Day. I'm just outlining this for you. Older men in our group, you are to practice wisdom and discretion. And if you download the notes, I've got words and their meanings all for you to reflect on. The second category and the, the third, older women, younger women, I'm going to deliberately skip over so I can come back to and focus in on. So jump with me down to verse 6. Younger men, younger men are to lead their families by example and through instruction. So guys, younger men in here who have a family, it's not enough for you to just be a good moral person who does the right thing and takes your family to church and maybe loves on your wife on occasion. You actually have to teach your family. You understand this? It's not just for a guy like me who does this vocationally. Every single married man needs to take on the mantle of helping his wife understand the truth. And it's not because the wives can't understand the truth, it's because that's the role God has assigned to the husband in the marriage. I remember Pastor Irvin McNeil being here. That was back um, last year. And he asked the question, how many of you read the Bible together as couples? He kind of called out all the couples. And there was a striking number of people who could not raise their hands to that question. How many of you men, old and young, take, make, make some effort to lead your family in family worship? I'm not talking about awkward family worship, although I haven't yet found a time when it isn't difficult and challenging to some level, but are you even trying? And if you are in the boat of not trying, not doing, today is the day that you recommit and say, I'm going to go back after that for the glory of God. Ask your family or your wife and family Will you please forgive me, honey? This is something I should be doing and I haven't been doing enough. So what does that mean? Well, it could mean simply pick a book of the Bible, read one paragraph at a time, talk about it. You don't have to outline it. You don't have to have a poem in three points. Just talk about it, pray together, and move on your way. It's simple things. If you can add singing, it's awesome, okay? And so I want to encourage you to think through that. You can get lyrics to songs on your phone. It's really simple and just make a joyful noise to the Lord. Um, that's family worship type stuff. But then this idea of employees to model the gospel in the workplace, I'm kind of being soft here in verse 9 through 10. It says, bond servants to your masters. Let's be honest, this is talking about slavery. But it's not the American form of slavery. It's the first century culture. It is more like employer-employee. And it's interesting to me, that Paul is telling Titus, instruct your church, if you work for someone else, make sure that your behavior matches the weight of the gospel. It's not really a directive towards masters, treat your servants the right way, that's Ephesians 6. This is slaves, treat your masters the right way, and the connotation is actually some beautiful picture. Could you imagine this? Showing up at church and looking over the aisle and there's your boss, and the relationship there should be so um, beautifully laid out to where in church you are brothers together or brother to sister or you view them as a father or a mother. Uh, meaning when we come to church, it's the, it changes the way we should treat one another. Paul is telling this to Titus. And, and 
If you're wondering if I know what it's like to be in a church where my boss is present, I do. I have lived that way here for quite a while. Okay, he's like, what are you talking about? Well, we have elders here in the church, not that they're my bosses. But my job at Bob Jones University has it such that I will have many, many people above me. Alan Benson is my boss, and he's a member of our church. Go figure that one, right? Does it work? I think it works great. And I think actually we should be able to model that in our churches, right? It's really healthy to consider it. So that was all extra. I want to focus our attention on these, this middle section. So I'll pull up his face. Kids, you can draw his picture, the unseen blessing of life. Look with me at verses 3 through 5 together, and, and we'll just hone in specifically on this section. Older women, likewise, so similar to older men, are to be reverent in behavior. So this idea of being reverent in behavior has this concept of being pious or devote in the way they approach issues. Uh, doesn't mean stuffy, but reverent in the way they conduct themselves. Um, and I know maybe I should start by saying it's hard for you to put yourself in the classification of an older woman if you're not wanting to be in that classification. But if you have anyone younger than you here and if you've had any um, experience in raising kids, I'm sorry you're in that, that classification, Okay. I love you, but that's where you are. So now let me say it again. So you're to be reverent in your behavior. You're not to be slanderers, which means actually the word for devilish or taking information and kind of exaggerating or slandering someone else with it and and getting involved and whispering about things that you shouldn't whisper about. It says here, or slaves to much wine. It is the idea of being enslaved or allowing something to gain control over you. You're supposed to be different. See, uh, to put it another way, the Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it this way, Titus was likewise to teach older women to behave reverently in a way suitable to sound doctrine. They were not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. Both were real possibilities for women whose families were grown and who may have had too much idle time on their hands. So the idea with older women is you might think, well, what else is there for me to do in the church of all things, of all places? There's a ton. In fact, I want you to notice the phrase here at the end of verse 3. They are to teach what is good. What's your responsibility as an older lady at PBC, Palmetto Baptist Church? You are to teach, which is the idea of doctrine, what is healthy or good. You're to teach. Titus was to encourage these older women to develop a ministry of teaching younger women what is good. Now let me say it one more time. Older ladies in the church, it's not for you to wait for the church to develop a program called Titus 2 for you to pour into younger women. It's your responsibility to say, I am to make disciples of the nations beginning at my local church, and I need to look around me and say, are there any younger women in our church? Oh, yep. In fact, yes, quite a few, number of them. So what am I doing to pour into them? We try to make it simple through the community groups where you have opportunities to interact with a multi-generational group. You may not be in a community group like that that doesn't keep you from pouring into others. It's as simple as, and I I could say this from conversations I've had with younger women in the church, younger women both married and unmarried. This context is dealing particularly with younger married women, but younger younger women married or unmarried, I can tell you from conversations with them that most of the ladies 
would love to have some of you older women come up to him and say, hi, my name is, I know we haven't talked before, but I would really love to get to know you. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? And can we set up a time for us to meet? And if you're a younger woman and an older woman in our church does that, I want you to say, I would love that. Even if you think they're quirky. Because guess what? You are as well, okay? We all are. (laughs) And, And take advantage of the opportunity. Let us be the kind of church God intends for us to be. It's pretty clear here that the older women are to teach what is good, and it also uses the word to train. And that word to train in verse 4, to train the younger women. This is a unique word. It's not about, here are the bullet points, point one, point two, point three, and this is the curriculum. It literally means to encourage, to advise, or to urge. So you're supposed to teach truth, but you're supposed to come along and encourage So that to me means a listening ear. What's going on? How can I help you? This is how I've handled it. Hey, it hasn't been perfect for me, but I want to encourage you to think about that. That is an unseen blessing that we can practice and start in this church. And I know it's going on in little bits, but it sure isn't going on to the extent I'd love to see it go on and what Scripture is calling us to have happen. I almost, I won't do this, but I, I'm just tempted and kind of moved to say, if you're a younger lady in this church and you'd be open to some older lady mentoring you, raise your hand. I'm not doing that, but oh, I want to. I think it would be overwhelming. And if you would classify yourself as an older woman, raise your hand. No, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> Notice the second category here is the younger women. And it's, it's in verse four. So we're introduced to them, younger women. This is the idea of fresh, new mothers, okay? We are, uh, they are to do a couple of things. In fact, the couple means seven things. There's a list of seven things here. What I love about this list of seven things, it starts out with what older women should teach younger women how to be and then what to do. And I, I love that because so many times when we try to encourage someone, disciple them, we talk about what they need to change instead of who they need to become. And here Paul is very clear to Titus. This is what you need to become, and this is what you need to do. Now, older women, application for you on this happy Mother's Day is that if you're not modeling these truths in your own life, then maybe you should work on those so that you can say you're practicing what you preach, right, what you're teaching. But notice this wonderful list here. Train the young women to love their husbands. And please don't miss this. And I I think that to love their husbands, to love their children, that's two of the four. Then it's this idea of self-control and purity. That's what you need to be. Loving to to your husband and to your children, you need to be self-controlled and you need to be pure. What you do is you work at home, you're kind and you're submissive to your own husband, it says. Lest that's confusing, and it shouldn't be. I love the word for love here because we think of love means just, you know, Agape, but that's not the word. It's actually the word for like or have strong affection for, warmth, friendliness, care, and regard. Philanderous. See, it's not hard to do what you need to do. It's a whole another level to actually like what you're doing and actually like the person that you're supposed to like. So older women are to teach younger women, actually start to enjoy your spouse, and enjoy your kids. And isn't that a great challenge as you're raising kids? I know it is. Because they can 
always come at the most inconvenient times when you're, in the, for us, it's like when we're settling down, cup of coffee, ready to watch some great movie, like up, and we're, we're sitting there, and then all of a sudden, okay, ready, time for bed, Dad. Or, or worse, there's fighting going on, and, and Heather and I look at each other, who's going to go up there? Hey, it's your turn, my turn, whatever. Come on, love me, care for me, you go. No. No, it, it usually comes at an inconvenient time. You know what's inconvenient? I'll tell you what's inconvenient. Younger women in here, mothers, it is inconvenient to discipline your kids. But it is the most loving thing you can do. Self-controlled. I'm not talking about you're losing your cool. I'm telling you it is inconvenient when they're throwing a tantrum, you know, in the grocery store, and they want their whatever Pop-Tart, and you say, no. And they say, blow up. And you say, okay, throw the Pop-Tart in there. Let's get at it. And we're going to talk about this in the car. You know, how courageous is it to leave the cart right there in the aisle and say, come here, sweetie. <laughs> Time to go home. And if, you, if I talk about, when I talk about um, spanking, I, I just said it, yeah. If I talk about spanking to you and you think of things like abuse, then you're not thinking of it biblically. Okay, biblically, if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. So I think it's interesting that it is an inanimate object. That's why we do not use our own hands when administering corrective punishment to a place that God gave them that has extra padding, backside. Okay, and I'm not trying to get weird and all fundy on you about this. I'm just trying to to speak the truth to you, okay? It is inconvenient to slow down to say that is a problem, that's a hard issue that could produce a problem down the road. I was just at the park yesterday because I took Silas and his buddy to the park and I was studying using my phone. I've got Logos on there. And I saw one of the neighborhood kids take the trash can at the park in our Rose Hill neighborhood and try to dump it out all over the park. I said, hey, yo, buddy, don't do that. Don't do that. He was so aghast that someone would address him that way. He's like, you're not my dad. I said, oh, no, I know that. But, you know, this is a park, and that's not, that's not cool. So he picks up the trash can, puts it back up, and then he goes to one of his buddies, who was someone he's trying to influence, a couple years younger, and that little kid came over to me while I'm reading and said, you're not his boss. You're not his boss. I looked at the little kid. I said, are you talking to me, buddy? He said, yeah, you're not his boss. And he ran away. And, he, and I heard him say to the other, is that good? Did I tell him what you wanted me to tell him? <laughs> and so he came back over here and I said, listen to me. He said, you're not his boss. You're not his boss. I said, listen, buddy, I want to tell you something. You don't have to listen to him. He's telling you to do the wrong thing. You know, I know it's weird, but I'm an adult. <laughs> and then I stood up and then he ran. <laughs> <laughs> there are kids that are out of control in this world. We know this, right? It's inconvenient to love your kids in this way, but it is biblical to demonstrate love by administering discipline. And discipline done the right way usually takes a lot of time. And it does involve trying to reach the hard issue. It's not just about behavioral modification. But that's, I'll get off that tangent just for a second. But younger women, love your husbands. Notice how I didn't spend a lot of time on that, loving your husband. I could, but... um, Guys, we do so many annoying things to our wives. <laughs> Pick up your dirty laundry. Okay, put it away. Do the dishes on occasion. 
mow the lawn, take the trash out. You know, the garbage, the garage, figure it out, do it. Um, make yourself easy to love, is what I'm trying to say. Not just on Mother's Day, either. Notice the word self-controlled here. This means prudent, moderate, or sensible. It's the same as verse 2 for older men. Teach the younger women to have self-control. Teach the younger women to be pure. That means without defect or blemish. Teach the younger women to do now, working at home. This is busy at home, carrying out household duties. This is the concept of a homemaker. This is a good thing which is diminished in our society today, and it shouldn't be. It's a high calling. You can look at salaries.com. How much does an average homemaker, how much is she worth? I looked it up last night. $162,000 if you take all the things that she does from an administrative, an executive, and all sorts of things. You're like, boy, that would be great if I got paid that. Well, I know you, you won't, but... <laughs> Teach them to be kind to benefit, to build up those around you. Teach them to be submissive, voluntarily giving up your rights for the good of another, and specifically your own husband. You do not have to be submissive to other men. You have to be submissive to your own husband. So much more could be said in this context, but I do want to note, I want you to note something. Note at the end of verse 5, it says in Titus 2, that the word of God may not be reviled. What's the purpose of this? The purpose, again, the motivation behind this, older women teach and encourage younger women to be and to do a certain way so that the word of God is not reviled. And if you're missing the motivation, the motivation is picked up after talking about how younger men should act in the next verses, in verse 8, so that an opponent may, not, may, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And one last time in verse 10, for slaves, to how they treat their masters, there's a purpose so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. By manifesting these qualities, Paul wrote, young Christian wives and mothers should earn the respect of outsiders and thereby prevent God's word from being maligned. Why should we do this? Because the outside world is watching and we as members of Palmetto Baptist Church want to shine as lights in a very dark culture. And we can do that but I'm going to tell you how when I come back up. Let me pray. We're going to sing together, and I'll come back and give you how, which is a look at the grace of God, which is a beautiful look at the grace of God. Thank you, God, for the truths found in Titus 2. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to consider them. Bless us as we worship you and as we look to you to provide everything we need to make this all possible. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, if you didn't know this, Kyle Calhoun, who is leading music, is an intern here at Palmetto Baptist Church. And so as you see him in different contexts serving, um, just want you to know about that. We have some others that are working towards that, and we'll announce that to you as that starts for each of them. So here we are, Mother's Day sermon. I want to invite you to open your Bible, because you need to see this, to chapter 2 of Titus, verses 11 through 14 in particular. This is where it becomes hopeful. This is where I think it gets good because it deals with the grace of God. So we're going to talk about finding renewed purpose in life. And here we're encouraged to find renewed purpose in life through the grace of God that inspires us. I want you to see this from verse 11. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God, grace is unmerited favor. It's a gift from God that has appeared. It's the word for epiphany. And because of it, sometimes we get the idea that as soon as I finally get it, I'm inspired, I see it, that's when it appears to me. But I actually think Paul is talking about Jesus Christ. I think he's talking specifically about Jesus Christ coming in his first advent. To help you see that, you can look over at chapter 3, verse 4, which says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, and here's a word, epiphany, appeared. When Jesus himself in bodily form appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by, his, by us in righteousness, not, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So when I call you to consider what old, older women should do and be and what younger women should do and be, and I reference older men and, and younger men, and it's overwhelming what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to become like. I want you to know it's possible as we look to the gospel because the gospel of Jesus Christ inspire us, inspires us to say, God gave Jesus as a free gift to all of us. And he's asking me to follow him in these little ways. I can do that. Because looking at Jesus and what he did in becoming a man and living a sinless life and dying on that cross and rising again is inspirational. Because Jesus Christ has appeared. Notice in chapter 3, verse 5, I have listed here, I'm referencing the Trinity here. Not only is it the righteousness of Christ, but it is by the washing, I'm in chapter 5, verse, the, the second part, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. How is this possible? Because Jesus already modeled it, because the Spirit inside you empowers you to do these things. This is really good news. And then going back to verse 11, it says, bringing salvation, notice, for all people. It tells us something about the love of God. It's for all people. It's offered freely. Everyone has an opportunity to respond. Not everyone will. God knows who they are, but I am here to tell you that if you're here today and you haven't responded to God's free gift of the gospel, you can do that right now. You can say, man, I need this grace. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. I need that. And he offers it freely to us. This should inspire us to consider this idea, older women, to not be slanderers or to be reverent and not to be addicted to any outside substance. Younger women, it should encourage you to love your husband and your children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, and then to act it out by being really... Um, productively working at home, kind and submissive to your own husband. This is possible because of the grace of God. But not only does it inspire us, it guides us. The words here are fabulous to me. Because it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. For the grace of God trains us. The words for training here is this idea of this concept of a verb that is present and active. So God's grace, the fact that he has appeared, that the Holy Spirit does a work, and that God's love is abundantly offered to everyone, should actively do something in our hearts to guide us, to train us, 
This is the idea to provide instruction for informed and responsible living. And as I look at the Greek here, it is not that point-by-point instruction, but more the word that has the concept of child embedded into it. It's the coming alongside a kid to help him understand what's going on and the direction he needs to do. That's what God does through his grace. So I'm saying to you, as we reflect on what Jesus did for us and the Holy Spirit does for us and what God has shown to us, it should teach us to renounce certain things, to live a certain way, to have this idea that I'm going to be willing to wait for him to come. Notice the prepositions here. Training us to renounce, that's in verse 12. But then it also goes on to live. You see this in your Bible? To renounce certain things, to live self-controlled. And then in verse 13, waiting for, to wait. And we see here this concept of hope here. In verse 14, the last one, we are zealous for good works. I'm summarizing this text by saying that the grace of God will do this for us. It will guide us like a GPS does in telling us where we need to go by helping us see these things. I'm supposed to renounce certain things. I'm supposed to live a certain way to wait expectantly for his appearing, which is the same word for epiphany that we found earlier and now we find coming up again that he is one day going to come back and to work faithfully. So let me unpack it just quickly with you. To renounce, verse 12. This is a point in time, a decision that you make. It's aorist. I renounce, I refuse, I disdain, or I deny ungodliness. So we need to, based on the grace of God, choose not to go the way that is anti-God. Just to put it very simply, when we know that God says do this, we need to follow it. If it's anti-God, we don't have anything to do with it. uh, Ungodliness is to live in a manner contrary to proper religious beliefs and practices. It's twisting or corrupting what God meant to be good. But notice worldly passions. This worldly is the word for where we get cosmicus or cosmos, or the world. So what should that make you think? Worldly passions. Passions are urges or drives here. And this is the idea of cravings. Don't be ruled by your cravings, but have the idea of the permanent is more important than the immediate. So to put it in simple ways, renounce, because of the grace of God, anything that's anti-God. And anything that fits into the category of worldliness. And where do we get that category of worldliness? 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For anyone that loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What's in the world? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So don't, so renounce anything that's anti-God and, and renounce anything that takes what God intended for good, that which is beautiful, that which we desire. Desires are a good thing if held within the boundaries of what God designed. Even the idea of being effective in ministry or in your career is a good thing, but if it becomes the pride of life, it's a bad thing. So because of the gospel, we're supposed to say, I'm not going to have anything to do with anything that's anti-God or pro-world. James 4 says, to be a friend with the world is to be at enmity with God to be an adulteress. We don't want to do that. The positive is to live. Notice it says in verse 12, instead, live self-controlled. This word for live is also a decision. It's in the aorist. It's to conduct oneself in a particular manner specified by its context. 
I'm not going to go with what the world has to offer and anything that's anti-God. Instead, I'm going to strive to be self-controlled. It's to behave in a sensible manner. Moderate in your behavior. I love this because, really, if you're, you're not making the connection, Paul tells Titus, tell the older men to do this, tell the older women to do this, the younger women to do this, younger men to do this, slaves to masters do this. And then he says, and by the way, God's grace is abundant. It inspires you, and it offers you everything you need to know and do to be the things I just told you to be. You get that? I I want you to make that connection. You can practice self-control because Jesus lives within you, is what I'm saying to you. It's not about you just choosing to be self-controlled. It's you falling back and saying, I can't do this on my own. I need you. Will you please help me? And he's like, "Uh, of course. This is what God's grace does. It teaches us. It comes alongside us. So when I look at the self-control, I put this word in this idea of just be controlled. Okay, live a controlled life um, with confidence. Notice this next word, upright. It's a beautiful word. Self-control, but upright. Upright means this idea of pertaining to being right as the result of being justified and deserved. So what we do is we sit there and we say, I am going to practice self-control And when it comes to anyone making accusations about who I am, I'm actually going to remind myself I have already been justified by God. I am approved by God through Jesus. That gives me calm confidence. You can make accusations towards me. As long as I'm walking with the Lord, they're just going to fall back off of me because I am justified, just as if I never sinned. And I'm confident as I go forward, as I am confronted with the difficulties in life, I can have control and I can be confident that I'm doing what God wants me to do. And then it says to be godly, to live godly, to live live godly lives. This is pertaining to the proper uh, uh, expression of religious beliefs. So instead of anti-God, you're pro-God. You're a devout and God-fearing person, the type of person described in Acts 10.2 when describing Cornelius. So instead of anti-God, you're pro-God. I, I view this as being a person with conviction. So to put it in really simple terms, renounce anything that's anti-God and anything that's pro-world and live in a way that is controlled, confident, and a person with conviction. And please note, it's connected in this, this phrase here, godly lives in the present age. This is not the word for cosmos. This is the word for the system of practices and standards associated with secular society. So if you haven't been listening, listen to me now, because I want to make this as practical as I possibly can. If we are inspired by the grace of God and taught by the grace of God, then we're going to have our eyes open to see what the world is teaching, and we're going to ask ourselves, does it fit in the filter of the Bible? And let me give you a couple topics. Which does the Bible teach? Egalitarianism or complementarianism? Like, what the, what the compliment, what? Egalitarianism, which is total equality in all roles, including in the church, so women can be pastors. Or complementarianism, which means that the Bible lays out roles for women to fulfill. This is a very hotly debated topic, and it's a very popular topic that comes out in all sorts of questions. And there are questions some of you have, and I need to respond to some emails I've received randomly. I'll get emails about... Why don't we have deaconesses? I think that's a great question. Because I'm going to a church that has them. Family Baptist has deaconesses. We don't have them here. And that's a good question to ask, but does that open the door for them? Why don't we have women who teach, 
who are at least under the authority of the elders. This is a hot topic. What does the Bible say about it? We need to be ones that care and learn and grow together, guided by God's grace. Here's another one. How about the definition of family? Is the family defined as same-sex couples who love on kids? You know, there's a radical movement going on that's taking out all of these foster parents uh, or organizations, even Bethany, the organization that would help provide adoption to Christian evangelical couples has now given in to the LGBTQ plus agenda because it's financially beneficial to them. And we must not give in to that pressure even though the pressure is intense. This is the age that we live in right now. I've already talked about the whole thing about discipline. I wrote down other topics such as how familiar are you, familiar are you with the push towards social justice movement. And is it right or is it wrong? Should we use the phrase, black lives matter? You know, I'm talking to a primarily uh, white audience. So it's pretty comfortable for me to talk about that here, right? It's a whole other thing if you're not in a completely or primarily white audience. We're not all white, but very much that way. Should we use that or should we not? What is this idea of social justice? I want you to understand this. It is some, it's a movement the, that has all sorts of connections to this concept of exalting one race over another race. The critical race theory, I'm encouraging you from a simple statement to reject that. It's not biblical. What it calls for, it calls for blame shifting and not acknowledging what true depravity is in understanding that there is a solution through Jesus Christ. Repentance, reconciliation, these are hot topics, and we're right about to go into the center, the epicenter of all these topics in Minneapolis. So I'm very aware of that, and and so my goal is not, I don't really think that you should come to church and just hear messages on social, social justice and Black Lives Matter. I don't think that's beneficial to God's church. I think what's beneficial is messages about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it transforms. But I do need you to understand there is this equality act coming and we need to think about what are we doing about that individually as believers and how are we going to respond as a church. So all of a sudden when I read this passage, I am so grateful for God's grace. Because God's grace trains us how to live in this present age. There's hope, you guys. And as we start to grasp that, we wait expectantly because as I start to bring up any of those topics, and I could give you more, but I'll stop there. It makes us go, man, when are you coming back, Jesus? This, this waiting expectantly, this idea is a, a verb, which is in the present tense, to wait, is to take up, to welcome, to accept. Even now, come Lord Jesus, it says in the book of Revelation. But it says to do it in such a way that it says, waiting for our blessed hope. Is that a blessed hope that Jesus is coming back? For some of us, yes. For others, no. If you're not right with God, it is not a blessed hope. It's actually terrifying. The difference I would put, and I have this in the notes, is 2 Thessalonians 2.8 talks about when the lawless person is revealed and the son of perdition comes, he's going to set all things straight. And if you're on the wrong side of that line, you're in trouble. But if we are on the right side of that, it actually offers us 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Jesus is coming back, and that does offer hope. 
I just think that I hear so many people, so woe is me, our culture is going to uh, ruin, and what are we going to do, and, and I know, let's move to Florida, or, you know, it used to be moved to Texas, now it's Florida, and, and how about, hold up, how about be the kind of church God wants us to be wherever he places us? How about shine as a light, be salt and light in our communities? We don't run and hide, because pretty soon you won't have a place to run and hide to. So choose you this day whom you will serve. Now that's me rebuking, right, and exhorting. I'm going to exhort you with this. It's possible because God's grace makes it possible for us. And it should lead us to work faithfully. Verse 14, again, if you don't know, he says, look to Jesus, who gave himself for us to buy us back, to redeem us from all lawlessness, We had nothing worth anything for him to claim. But he loved you so much. He says, I don't care. You're a mess, but I'll take you. And he continues to say that today. Redeem all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. It's not about your church, your your choice. It's about God's church, God's choice. And what are we supposed to be? Not just involved in good works. Like, let's go do good things. It uses the word zealous, which that kind of gives me the idea of being an enthusiastic loyalist. Like, I want to be known by what I do, what I stand for. Yes, of course, you got to stand for truth. But what do people know about your actions? Are you zealous for good works? Titus 3.8, I think the key of this book the saying is trustworthy. I want, you, I want you to insist on these things so that you, those who have believed in God, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. What good work are you involved in? Ephesians 2.10, you have been created by God for good works, which he preordained that you would walk in them. All I'm saying to all of us is let's wake up on this Mother's Day and let us be renewed in our purpose. So here's application for you. Know what God expects from you. Put yourself in the category. I put in here older women, younger women. Go back to the text and look at it. I have in the notes, older men, younger men. You can look at that, but there are expectations. Earlier in the book, it talks about leaders. There are expectations. Figure out where you fit and then start going after it. And then the great hope is rest in what God provides you, which is his amazing grace. So nothing I've shared with you should weigh you down to the point where you're paralyzed. You don't know what to do. There is a way, and the the way is made true to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He offers us grace. His grace trains us. Let's pray together and ask God to help us to make truth applied here in our lives. God, do a work in our body right now. There's so much that we're facing that concerns all of us but there is so much you've given us that overwhelms us. Help us to rest in that. Trust in you and hope in you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to ask Heather to play, and I'm going to give you a moment to cry out to God and give him what he is calling from you right now, to trust him, to find hope in his amazing grace.